Hello everyone, Danny Roddy of DannyRoddy.com. Today we're going to do a Q&A and it's also going to be my love letter to the audience. You know, this year has been uh, pretty wild, you know, getting Ray on the stream, doing them more consistently. So anybody that knows anything about me is that I have a uh, chronic problem with not making content regularly, just uh, the way I work. <laughs> and so doing the live streams has really been a way to pump out content regularly that I'm happy with and uh, is fun. It's fun in the process, getting the audience involved and things like that. So this uh, Q&A was supposed to happen like two months ago and it just, uh, the internet connection was bad. And so now we're just going to record it and put it out and hopefully you guys enjoy it. Um, what else do I want to say? Again, thank you guys so much. We have an amazing audience this year, despite the YouTube type of uh, censorship or whatever is going on. It's still been really fun and the show has grown and people seem to be receptive to it and enjoy it. And so uh, that makes me extremely happy. And the fact that we've been able to get Ray involved has really been the, the coup de gras. And so uh, I appreciate everybody for making it possible. So let's get right into the questions. Oh, you know, before that, <laughs> let's go over the mission statement for the solo stream. Somebody messaged me and they're like, you know, the questions you don't know, you should write them down and then present them to Georgie and Ray. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Uh, I'm just going to wing these questions, uh, use my Evernote, use my own experience and try to answer things to the best I can. 70% of these questions, you know, I don't know. And I have no problem saying that. And so my mission statement for these solo streams is shedding light on underutilized resources, inspiring people to create their own resources uh, using Evernote, Notion, or a new one called Rome, inspiring people to experiment. There's a quote from Bucky Fuller, and it says, every time man makes a new experiment, he always learns more. He cannot learn less. <laughs> uh, Carl Rogers' experience is for me the highest authority. The touchstone of validity is my own experience. And another one from Bucky Fuller, he says, I'm not a genius. I'm just a tremendous bundle of experience. And Abraham Maslow, you will either step forward into growth or you will step back into safety. And these quotes resonate with me because, you know, uh, in my uh, job of coaching, a lot of people ask me for permission to do things. And, you know, I, I used to be in a similar type of situation. But uh, I think really experimentation is the key to, to moving in any kind of direction, hopefully a favorable direction. And sometimes you just have to kind of experiment with things that make sense. And so that's why putting a, a cohesive picture together of what's going on is so important. And that's why finding inf good information is important. And obviously, I think the bioenergetic or the Ray Pete type of approach or a thyroid approach or the stress approach, whatever you want to call it. And the other people that uh, talk about similar things like Hans Selye or Albert St. George or Otto Warburg. I think that this type of approach is the most novel and interesting. And, and to me, it makes the most sense. Okay, so let's get right into questions. Where are they? <laughs> Hold on a second here, people. Okay, here they are. Okay, Colin Rico. He says, uh, being in the military, I have grown increasingly concerned with the realistic possibility that military personnel will be some of the first to be pushed a COVID vaccine. If this occurs... What are some of the precautions to mitigate this, the harmful effects this vaccine or any uh, any vaccine may cause? So, uh, Ray, Georgie, and I have talked about this uh, on past live streams. So this is a two-month-old question. I'm sure Colin is familiar. If you go to generativeenergy.com and uh, the search on this isn't that amazing, but we have talked about vaccines and how to mitigate the damage from them. 
The problem is this is not a vaccine. This is a new type of mRNA experimental medicine that is being employed. And so I just don't think anybody knows uh, the long-term harms of of what's going to happen here and even how this is going to play out. And so I think for uh, like the adjuvants with like aluminum or another heavy metal, Ray was saying they cause like an extreme amount of inflammation and then qualming that inflammation with something like aspirin or some other anti-inflammatory would be useful. But I, I doubt that would completely override all the negative effects that a person would experience. But again, I just think it's it's the these waters are so untested, and people don't know what uh, what they're being injected with with this new type of vaccine, the mRNA. And so I I just wouldn't have anything useful to say because I don't even think anybody knows. Um, and I feel for Colin, you know, uh, the first responders and things like that get, getting. I just read an article about South Korea. The Americans over there were getting the vaccine early or something like that, but it seems pretty scary and I'm sure we'll all be in the same boat soon. And yeah, we'll talk more about this in other questions. Thanks for that, Colin. Appreciate it. Uh, Colin says, can you go into Mexican Coke a little bit more and why it's a part of your meals? Do you ever get pushback from people that are like, I thought you were healthy Coke really (laughs) frequently? (laughs) Um, so again, I would I would say, you know, the environment is so bad, our food supply is so bad that ironically some of these items that have been maligned as uh junk food or something can be kind of useful. And so Coke just fits into that category almost perfectly. Like the sucrose, the coca leaf extract, the um caffeine, those are all protective in a kind of a bioenergetic sense. They don't fit into a paleo approach, but that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> and so um, and I'm sure Colin has seen uh, if we search for this Roddy Mexican Coke, Ray P. So I purposely asked Ray about this a month ago on, on the live stream. And so, uh, who asked this question? Colin, you can, you can check this out. Ray Pete's defense of Mexican Coke. And I included a reference on this. It says Coke dropped cocaine from its recipe about 1900, but the secret formula still calls for cocaine free coca extract produced from step co. 100 metric tons, uh, tons of dried Peruvian coca leaves each year, uh, uh, or is still buy, uh, the Coke company still buys 100 metric tons of dried Peruvian coca leaves each year. And then if we minimize this, and what did I tag this under? Oh. Um, yeah, I just don't think it's that uh, <laughs> unreasonable. If Coke is still using the coca leaf, the sugar, obviously, I don't think that is harmful, and then the caffeine. So it's just a useful fill-in. I'm not saying uh, it should be uh, an essential part of anybody's nutrition, but it can be useful as a fill-in when a person doesn't have uh, good fruit available, which for me is is um, a lot of the time. You know, I'm, I'm drinking, and I also I like Coke with meat, and I I wouldn't drink fruit juice with meat. And so it's just a very useful thing uh, that's available in many places. The Coke in the U.S. and, and like the Philippines and the Thailand and places like that don't doesn't taste as good as Mexican Coke. I feel like Mexican Coke tastes like a fine wine. <laughs> but um, yeah, again, I think it's a useful thing in this terrible environment w- that we all inhabit. <laughs> okay, let's get to the next question here. Thank you for that, Colin. Uh, two Collins. New Health says, with everything that's happening, what countries do you think will stay livable? Uh, and have you considered starting a self-sustainable community somewhere? Maybe more people in the audience would be interested. So uh, my purpose for moving to Mexico was that 
in 2016, people were going so psychotic over the presidential election. I thought if another 9-11 happened, that the wheels would come off and things would go even more insane. And I, I didn't feel like I was really growing as a, perp- a person in San Francisco. It was just kind of uh, having these kind of same old types of conversations with the same allowed topics to talk about. And so I was like, uh, you're critical of the U.S. Why don't you leave the U.S.? And so I made the move to Mexico. And uh, ironically, the new 9-11 happened when I was in Bangkok. And so uh, being in a city while this whole thing was going down was probably the worst place to be. But um, so I, I, again, I hedged my bets in Mexico and I took measures to stay here long term. I imagine a lot of people will be uh, jumping ship and, and coming here in the next few years, you know, while they still can. But I don't know, to be honest with you, that the situation here is going to be any better than the U.S. I do know that it's a cash-based economy here. Things are slow, slower type of living, more working class, I guess. And so the idea that everybody's going to have some digital uh, identification linked up with their vaccination record to go to the grocery store or go on the internet, that seems a little bit, I'm sure it would... I would guess it would take a slower effect here than it would in the U.S. or Asia or, or anywhere else. And so that's when I'm, I guess, we'll have a few months or a year or, or something like that, uh, a head start uh, with these implementations uh, being implemented into the city or these new, this new style of living in the megapolis cities. Uh, Ray said some parts of Russia and things like that, but uh, he he would be the, really the guy to ask about what would be the, I think Georgie actually asked him in our last live stream. So check that out, New Health. Um, and have you considered uh, starting a self-sustainable community somewhere? <laughs> so I'm definitely not the person for that. I don't consider myself a leader or anything like that. There's a guy named Derek Brose of the Conscious Resistance, and he actually came down to Mexico to start something. And he's actually visited where I am in Mexico a few times. And so I am keen on uh, kind of linking up with him and, and talking to him because uh, maybe in the, the near distant future, you won't be able to get by uh, not giving in to all the, the new uh, dangerous modalities unless you are a part of some kind of commu- communitarian type of um, deal. And so I would be interested in talking to Derek and seeing what he has going on because he is a leader type. <laughs> Appreciate the question. Thank you so much. Uh, Techno Algebra says, uh, what could be a good way to minimize cyber or uh, candida if one has tried high carb and low carb plus some antimicrobials with no success? So I might take a little uh, a fringe approach on this, but I wouldn't just try to treat uh, some chronic bacterial or fungal problem just with nutrition alone. You could try the carrot salad. So I have a video about this. Uh, uh, five years ago, I made this video and you could try the carrot salad every day around noontime and adding the white uh, distilled white vinegar and refined coconut oil. You could also try white button mushrooms, which I think are a little bit more potent. And you could cook those for a few hours and then grind them up and add white distilled vinegar and also refined coconut oil. And if those didn't work, you could also try um, fluorocyst. How do you spell this? So this was a, uh, oh, I searched YouTube. So this was a product that Ray was talking about fairly frequently as like a um, kind of a replacement for antibiotics. And so this would be worth trying because it's over the counter 
And I think they're actually viruses that attack certain bacteria. <laughs> and so th this would be worth trying. And then it's kind of expensive, but mega spore biotic might be another uh, type of intestinal disinfectant that could be used because it contains interesting types of bacteria that are actually, actually produce their own antibiotics. And so again, I don't have any affiliation with these companies. I'm just trying to help out here. <laughs> Uh, but I have used these before and I, I thought they were helpful. This one, this one is a little bit expensive, but there's another thing. Um, but if those didn't work, I think erythromycin, penicillin VK, and the tetracyclines, uh, minocycline or doxycycline, specifically for a bacterial type of infection, I think those can be extremely useful and I think they're safe. I've experimented with all of them. I've stacked them together at certain times. And uh, I think a person can be shocked on how many symptoms can stem from the intestine, like almost anything you can think of. Uh, with candida, maybe, or candida, however they say it, I think flowers of sulfur might be useful to, to uh, it's very cheap and over-the-counter. Okay, so those would be some things. And then if a person is uh, experiencing like chronic infections, I think that could also indicate low thyroid function. So this paper in 2007, they say it is possible that once small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is established during the hypothyroid phase, it does not clear spontaneously, even if made euthyroid. And small uh, sifo. Do you guys hear that? <laughs> I think in Mexico, people drive down the roads with like loudspeakers uh, advertising products and things. Okay. Okay, let's get to the part, second part of this question. Okay, in the current polarization, uh, actually, I read this question. I didn't fully understand it. <laughs> um, in the current polarization of nowadays, right versus left, carnivore versus vegan, boomer versus zoomer, minority versus majority, a sign of fight or flight state of affairs when it comes to most of the population, the freeze and fall in response would be reflected in chronic stagnation of most individuals when it comes to the use of... Uh, uh, services or survives along with trying to patch up issues with silver bullets and blind following of authority towards fun. What would be a reflection of the opposites of fight, flight, freeze, and fun in society? Yeah, I don't fully understand what is being asked. Uh, and I'm just not smart enough to understand this question. But um, in relation to the, the, the problematic culture <laughs> that we all live in, I, I do think it's kind of on purpose. And so uh, I, I posted this a long time ago, but this was a, I think it was from a Lyndon LaRouche magazine and the, it was, I think it was referencing a white paper, but it said it, it was approximately 30 years ago that Kurt Lewin and Brigadier General Do, uh, Dr. John Rawlings Reese proposed developing methods of political control based upon driving the majority of the human population towards psychosis. And also, uh, narrowing people down into forms of organization, narrowing the scale of the groups by separations, according to race, sex, language, background, regional backgrounds, current status, uh, recreational interests, age groups, and neighborhood. And so like the intersectionality, like you couldn't possibly understand my experience because you're a woman or, but you couldn't possibly understand my experience because your skin color is different than mine. I think you can see that in the culture. Uh, and I'm sure it's probably being seeded by <laughs> intelligence and the news and things like that. Um, I think that's what kind of along the lines, hopefully of what this person was asking of like why people don't do anything, you know, because I, I, I would guess part of the problem is because people generally believe that they have no solidarity with their, their fellow human. Uh, and, and I, and so, yeah, I think that's been part of the culture. Uh, Mexicans are interesting. They all say like, what's up to each other. And so again, there does seem to be a, a sense of solidarity there that I never really experienced where I lived in California. I'm sure that's, it's probably different in the U S 
but uh, that does seem to be pretty prevalent here. Okay. Uh, Tumble Sensei says, I second how to deal uh, with ulcerative colitis. Let's see what the time here is. Okay, we're good. I got to go in about an hour. <laughs> I have to talk to somebody on Skype. So uh, we'll try to get through as many of these as possible. Uh, Tumble Sensei, uh, I second how to deal with ulcerative colitis repeat style. So I've never been been like diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, but I have had a history of inflammatory bowel. I mean, maybe it could have been diagnosed that way. But I would say just as an elevator pitch, a very careful diet. I would say um, checking the hormones, the TSH, the total cholesterol, the prolactin, the vitamin D, the parathyroid hormone, the serum phosphorus, maybe reverse T3, maybe lactic acid. Uh, getting the vitamin D level up, I think can be seriously useful for digestive problems. I think getting oysters and liver are extremely useful. The nutrition of those foods, especially the zinc and oysters, the vitamin A in, uh, liver. I think that that would be the, the pitch. And then if there's chronic inflammation, despite changes in the nutrition, that's when it might be useful to employ, uh, the products I mentioned earlier, the megasporbotic, or obviously the carrot salad and the mushrooms, or the megasporbotic, the fluorocyst, or erythromycin, penicillin VK, or uh, tetracycline. Because a person should not have to just like live with that. And I think it's correctable pretty quickly with the right interventions. And so I don't think it has to be like a lifetime of um, bad digestion, which is just awful. Okay. Okay, Vidovovic <laughs> says, how might one go about learning biology and chemistry to understand and truly validate Ray Pete's work? So I don't know how you would go about truly validating Ray's work. Uh, all I can say is when he was talking and considering all the past modalities I had been in, things resonated with me. And he was talking about experiences that I had that other people told me I was crazy, you know, like noticing my temperature, uh, like the paleo people were like, oh, you'll live longer because you're so cold. And that's uh, associated with longevity or something like that. But I would say, oh, it feels terrible to be cold all the time. So, so again, Ray talking about temperature being this very important variable that nobody is really talking about resonated with me given my past experiences. And so that's why I was kind of drawn to what he was saying. Um, but you're, I mean, this Evernote is an attempt at trying to understand things. Uh, I think I started in maybe around 2010 and I do put a fair amount of effort into it. You can see here, some of these notes like aren't tagged. That's me being extraordinarily lazy, <laughs> But I do try to tag these and uh, like uh, I'll tag them up here. I don't know if you can see this up here. Um, and then you can search it via your tags or Evernote is uh, pretty good at searching like PDFs and things like that. And so the typical way I'll do this, let me try to find a paper. Um, okay, so here is this DHEA one. So this was a reference from another paper that I linked up here. And then I, I couldn't copy and paste the text. So I just took a screenshot I posted the infer the interesting stuff here. This is the title of the paper, the interesting stuff, interesting stuff. And then towards the bottom is actually the actual paper. And so I copied this text out. And so this is how a lot of the notes look. And yeah, it's just very useful for like hearing Ray say something and then trying to validate what he's saying is very important to me. Uh, and I'm just a layman. I'm just attempting to understand. I'm trying to explain my own experiences and, uh, I, this is like my second brain. And so I, I take it somewhat seriously. I back it up like multiple times. Um, and yeah, I would encourage anybody to, to put something like this together. If you were, if this sounded interesting and, uh, and yeah, it can really, it can seriously help. I think, um, 
put things together, at least for me. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. Mira says, hi, Danny, any tips for people who have trouble focusing to uh, demonstrate ADHD like behavior are easily distracted and struggle with what I'm assuming is a dopamine dysregulation. I am amazed by the number of people who struggle with ADHD type issues today, myself included, and the number seems to be growing. I genuinely hope and believe that there are alternatives to various stimulants that are on the market, such as Adderall, Concerta, et cetera. Your input would be greatly appreciated. So I, uh, I have not like dived in deep to ADHD, but I would say, you know, monitoring my own behavior, I, I probably could have been like formally diagnosed with this, uh, because no, nobody's really, nobody has been telling me what to do for like la- the last 10 years. <laughs> and so it's totally up to me, whether I'm working on a project or uh, answering email, doing things I, uh, the work work related. And I feel like when, I don't know, the metabolism is good. You just kind of spontaneously want to do work and you want to get things done. And you're, I'm in a less of a vegetative state of just consuming. I kind of want to like produce. And so that like vegetative state is more ADHD, like multiple sources of entertainment or whatever, or having like tons of tabs open. Uh, whereas the, I think the, the best form of me is a more focused, uh, higher metabolic rate and wanting to get work done or wanting to make something. And so again, that might be associated with the high energy relaxed state, uh, versus the low metabolism, high stress, hyperactive state. And there's a quote from Albert St. Georgie. Let me see if I can. This is kind of along the the same lines. And so, St. George, says the role of ATP is not limited to the contraction cycle, uh, contraction cycle. It dominates the physical state of muscle, even at rest, keeping, keeping it soft and pliable. Uh, and he says, keeping ectomycin disassociated. I have shown with Borbiro that rigor mortis is but a lack of ATP. And then Ray has a um, really good quote here. This, so this is from his 2001 newsletter. He says, there are two different reactions to stress. Torpor and t- or tension, depression or hyper alertness are often seen as reactions to oversleeping or undersleeping. And so, yeah, that just being very important. Torpor being overly tired and exhausted or tension being two types of reactions to stress. And the torpor probably being a more like serotonin dominant state and the tension maybe being a higher adrenaline, higher cortisol or higher estrogen type of situation. Okay, great stuff. Uh, let me maximize this window. Thank you for that, Mira. Sincerely appreciate it. Okay, Teresa says, Hi, Danny. I recently moved from sea level to high altitude, 6,000 feet. I feel energized and amazing, but I'm noticing that I can't seem to sleep more than two hours a night. What could be going on here? Appreciate the show and what you do. So I live at, uh, I think, similarly, 6,000 feet, I think. <laughs> um, but I have uh, had trouble adapting before. And I, I thought I needed more carbohydrate the the first few weeks I was here. And then I bounced that off Ray at one of the, before one of the live streams. And he said, basically the same thing. Uh, the other possibility is that the altitude could be acting like taking actual thyroid and it could be increasing your need for, for certain things. And so that would be the only other thing I could think of. So just, uh, covering all your bases nutritionally. And then there's a paper That says uh, 1961 and say, in general, hyper hyperthyroidism has been shown to increase the need for many dietary essentials, whereas hypothyroidism appears to ameliorate some dietary deficiencies. 
Yeah. So that, I think that's very important. Like the higher your rate of metabolism gets, the more nutrition you're going to need. And that's not like almost everybody I talk to that only takes thyroid has some kind of issue and almost, uh, or the people that have very low pulse and rate, uh, pulse, uh, pulse and temperature, uh, they tend to, it's very difficult. I think at a certain point to only use nutrition to increase the metabolic rate, just because again, the environment we live in is so terrible. <laughs> okay. Thanks for that, Teresa. Um, Okay. Fab says, I recall you saying that you wash your hair only with baking soda. How many times per week? I just play it by ear. When it gets too greasy, I'll wash it. What essential oil would you add to the baking soda shampoo to give it some scent? I have read a few articles saying that rosemary and nettle have hair promoting effects, but I don't know anything about whether they are estrogenic and, and how they might have uh, affect the hair follicle. Any thoughts on this? I haven't investigated. I think most essential oils smell terrible. And so, I wouldn't do that. And I get, I, I think a lot of them are estrogenic. And so that would be something to read about. Um, and then he says, what do you use as toothpaste, deodorant and body wash apart from the do a do a coconut oil, lye bar soap that you mentioned years ago in San Francisco, I use the do a do a coconut soap, but most of the time I just use baking soda. And if I smell really bad or there's like a stench on my clothes or I smell my own scent, uh, it's usually there's something wrong, whether it's, I think, a increase in ammonia or something's up with my intestine or whatever. And so, um, so yeah, I just use baking soda, but I have to emphasize them a bum and I'm not telling anybody else to do this. <laughs> okay. Cardo Chef says, uh, have you considered an in-depth book review on your channel for authors often recommended by Ray, you know, like Jay Dyer's book reviews, that would be a great, uh, I, I I would love to do something like that. I don't have access to physical books and that's almost the only way that I read through a full book. And so when I was living here a year ago, I did have books and I could have done something like that, but now I don't. And also I'm moving around fairly frequently. And so just having like a big book collection is just totally um, not in the cards. So that would be a, a great idea, but I, I, I can't read like full books on the computer. This is impossible for me. Tiff says, as someone new to this community, community, what's your advice you'd give to someone on how to balance all of the vitamins and minerals? Some inhibit others and some help others uh, better absorb. If you get too much of this, it'll deplete that. You get the picture. Thanks. So this question resonates with me, uh, like a, a past version of myself that used to take lots of supplements. And, you know, and so if I was like, oh, I'm going to take zinc, I must take copper. And if I have to take zinc and copper, I must take selenium. And then I'll, oh, that will deplete my magnesium. So I'll have to take that. And so, um, one of the things I really liked about Ray was his emphasis on the metabolism dictating the, uh, partly dictating the nutritional status of the person and carbon dioxide being this thing that's regulate, regulating, uh, minerals and vitamins. Uh, and so I think the idea that, oh, I just eat this amount of zinc and then I'm saturated my zinc stores or something. I don't think it really works like that. You have to factor in the redox balance and free electrons causing, uh, oxidative harm and lipid peroxidation and and those things and how they relate to the the mineral balance and and vitamins and things and vitamins and minerals and things like that and so I think it's more confusing than the people progressing oh it's just all diseases problems with mineral depletion or something I I don't think that's accurate <laughs> um, again I think you have to uh, factor in the the thyroid function and the carbon dioxide and the entire endocrine system for example I think like high estrogen depletes B vitamins. It shifts the redox balance and creates free electrons that are, um, I think, going to not only cause lipid peroxidation, but uh, I think the various antioxidant uh, types of 
minerals and vitamins will be depleted also when there's a high level of oxidative stress or, or rather reductive stress of the accumulation of electrons. So anyways, I don't, I don't necessarily ag agree with this uh, type of approach. I think getting the temperature and pulse up, eating liver, eating oysters regularly, taking care of intestinal problems, supplementing vitamin D if it's low, supplementing vitamin K if you can afford it because it's so expensive. Uh, what else? Uh, getting a source of calcium, whether it's milk, Parmigiano, Reggiano cheese, or eggshells or something like that. I think those would be some of the most important things. And I, and I don't even think it's possible to micromanage <laughs> all the, the minerals. You know, how, how would you even know? Most of the tests are completely inaccurate. For example, Georgie and I and talked about, and, and I think Ray was on that episode too. We talked about how measuring the magnesium in the blood, you actually don't want tons of magnesium in the blood because it's an intracellular ion. And so if it was spilling out into the serum, that would actually mean cells were dying or stressed. And so again, I think a lot of measuring this stuff is almost impossible, but inspecting your own body for oddities that might suggest a dietary deficiency, I think that is a very good approach. And then, so say you had some symptom of zinc deficiency or like lines on the nails, which is commonly associated with that, like then eating more oysters would be a, a good approach. But um, just like this paper type of approach of like, oh, I got my enough zinc because I ate 10 milligrams today or something. I don't, I don't think that's that useful to be, to be honest. Okay. Um, Colin says, can you explain the value of aspirin for those that aren't sure about taking it? What sort of people should be taking it? Okay. So, uh, I think this quote from Ray really puts the, uh, puts the situation into context. He says, if a newly discovered substance had aspirins, anti-infective, anti-cancer, anti-stress, anti-accident, and anti-inflammatory actions, it would be the most researched substance in history. And so I made a video about this. It's it's in relation to male pattern baldness, but uh, I think all the information applies to almost any situation. Off the top of my head, it's anti-lipid peroxidation, helping to transfer electrons to oxygen, partly probably by increasing carbon dioxide, lowering nitric oxide, uh, in interfering with the cyclooxygenase 2 enzyme and the production of prostaglandins. And uh, prostaglandins uh, not are only are just generally inflammatory, but also increase the production of um, estrogen by activating aromatase, increasing testosterone into estrogen. And so there's not a lot that it doesn't have a positive effect on. Like I think it also uh, increase or de uh, decreases parathyroid hormone. And I think it's like a antidepressant. And so this paper says aspirin use was found to be associated with less depressive uh, depression and anxiety or worry as reported by the patient and perceived by a significant other. A few times I've kind of had that hyperactivity going, like the in inability to relax at, at bedtime and taking an aspirin got to me, got me to sleep really quickly. And that's probably a, like higher estrogen in the evening or higher adrenaline and cortisol. And so again, it just has so many uses. Uh, and so again, I wouldn't suggest somebody do something that they weren't comfortable with. It took me a, lot, a long time to warm up to aspirin. And I think it was only by noticing its utility. And I didn't even mention it, but Part of the whole stress cascade is the lipolytic stress hormones uh, uh, releasing, um, activating lipolysis and releasing free fatty acids of the blood. And then those block the use of glucose, increasing lactic acid, decreasing carbon dioxide and causing kind of a uh, vicious cycle of um, stress. And then aspirin 
interferes with that whole process, helping shift things towards carbon dioxide. And so this paper from 2004, they say, despite its proven efficacy, aspirin therapy is underutilized in patients with diabetes. Available data suggests that less than half of eligible patients are treated with aspirin. And then the last thing I'll talk about is this paper by Gomez. And so they talk about uh, 0.3 to 3.6 grams per day, 4 grams per day, 4 to 6 grams per day, depending on the problem. And then they they uh, have a bunch of things. Some of the things I said already, decrease in lipid peroxide, uh, peroxide formation, decrease in intracellular calcium concentration, blocks the formation of free fatty acids and the conversion of arachidonic acid into cyclic endoperoxides, uh, apparently decreases histamine, uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation, increasing heat and carbon dioxide, uh, increasing oxygen uptake, increasing carbon dioxide, a lot of, a lot of good things. So it's kind of like an anti-aging <laughs> or anti-stress like Ray said. Okay. What's the time? Okay. Excuse me. Okay. Let's get into this next question. <laughs> Thanks guys. I really appreciate it. If you enjoy this, please uh, give this episode a like, not this next week, but the week after will be Georgie. Then the week after will also be Georgie and then we'll have Ray on. So it'll be a Georgie, Georgie and Ray uh, for the next um, like three weeks after this, like it's the 29th of December right now. Uh, after this next week, we'll, we'll start having Georgie on again. Okay. Questions. Okay, Juan says, can you talk a bit about dairy and the stance that drinking milk can cause sinus pressure and congestion? Have you had any issues with mucus overproduction from your daily milk intake? The only issue I had with milk was that it always gave me diarrhea. And so uh, taking an antibiotic solved that, uh, taking penicillin VK for about two weeks. People have told me that, that they get mucus like automatically from milk. And I Ray addressed it, I think, in a KMUD episode somewhere online. And he said that uh, there's some type of allergy creating like a mucus and histamine from the intestine. I, I didn't fully grasp what he was saying. So, so again, I think my general impression of this is it, I think it's usually in the aller, uh, allergenic or allergy prone individual. And so again, getting the thyroid function up, getting the carbon dioxide up, restrains mast cells from releasing histamine. Uh, getting the vitamin D up, which I think does a, a similar type of thing, lowering parathyroid hormone, which activates mast cells. And so I, uh, if you, if it happened with all brands, if you used to drink milk when you were a kid, uh, if milk is too much of a problem, Parmigiano Reggiano is obviously a, uh, could be used as a calcium source or eggshells if they didn't upset the person's digestion, but I haven't ever experienced this, uh, directly. Sven says, when will you have one-to-one -one conversations available on Patreon? Again, I think I'm pretty sure they're open and they always open towards the end of the month. And so it's the 29th right now. I'm sure people will jump off that. That usually happens. Okay. Uh, Chris says, Danny, someone I know has been working <laughs> at increasing metabolism using Pete's and your ideas for a while now. This includes full nutrition, eggs daily, liver weekly, oysters every few days, getting adequate protein, balancing phosphate with calcium, Lots of carbonated beverages and supplementing uh, T4 and T3, vitamin A, E, D, K, pregnenolone, progesterone, and superheptidine, all topically when uh, where possible. Overall, this person feels good, but there are some times of excessive sleepiness and tiredness. Is this the body adjusting to thyroid metabolism? Could there uh, be a deficiency at play? Thanks. So this is very complicated. <laughs> and so if I was taking all these things, I, it would be uh, it would destabilize me. I'd be too confused. And so whenever I got confused, when, if I ever get confused, I always stop a lot of things and I kind of go back to square one. 
And so just getting the right dose of T3 and T4, I think is very difficult. (laughs) So not a lot of people say this, but for example, if a person is going to take like 10 micrograms of T3 and 40 micrograms of T4 or the equivalent kind of of one grain, it can, that can take two or three weeks to build up in the system and say, hypothetically, they needed two grains that could take six weeks to get to that dose. And it would be important for the person to monitor, monitor their temperature and pulse, the, the whole process. And so, uh, uh, low, if the pulse and temperature are low, a person, I think generally doesn't need extra vitamin A. So that same reference we talked about earlier, they say excess vitamin A has been reported by several workers to reduce the metabolic rate. And this jives with, uh, Ray has said that many times. Uh, and also if I've supplemented with vitamin A, it's caused, uh, occasionally caused me to be very cold almost instantaneously. And so I suspect it does suppress the thyroid function. Pregnenolone, progesterone, and ciproheptidine. Ciproheptidine, I, I experimented with it a lot in 2017 and I could never get over the sleepiness that it caused the next day. It almost would ruin the next day for me reliably. And so I, I, don't take ciproheptidine. I, I know a lot of people do find it to be very useful, but that could cause excessive sleepiness and tiredness. And so I think the really important information here with what Chris is asking is finding out the temperature and the pulse, things like the cholesterol, the vitamin D level, like the actual level in the blood. Um, and that would help guide the ship, I think. And so getting empirical information, just like taking all these things is, is likely to be extremely confusing without some kind of um, empirical information about the person. And so when I lived in San, Fr- uh, San Francisco and Southern California, whenever I was extremely confused, I went and got lab work. And so paying $100 or $150 for the TSH, the total cholesterol, the vitamin D, the prolactin, the parathyroid hormone, those were always extremely useful. Sometimes I would think that my vitamin D was too high uh, when it was deficient and vice versa. And so there was always something to learn by getting those tests. T Brown, weight loss, weight loss on bioenergetics. Is it easy, easy to be overcarbed? I wish I had saved it, but my friend Andrew Kim uh, said that once the liver glycogen uh, or the liver, the storage of sugar in the liver is topped up, the person has less of a craving or appetite for sweet things. And Ray has said a similar thing. That makes a lot of sense to me, given my limited experience. In fact, I've told this story a few times, but Sometimes when I'm making milk at nighttime, I'll put in, I'll accidentally put in too much sugar to the milk and I'll taste it. I'll be like, oh my God, it's so sweet. And then I'll put it in the refrigerator or something. And then when I wake up, I'll drink that same milk and it will be noticeably less sweet. And so I think that is like the real time taste, uh, sensitized sensitization to the sugar and the milk, um, or less of a sensitization in the morning. Like it's my liver glycogen is low because I slept And I can, my body is giving me a signal that I can eat more carbohydrate in the morning. And so that's just my interpretation of it. As far as weight loss, I do kind of want to play a clip from uh, Twitter uh, of Kyle. (laughs) And so Kyle Mamunis, he, oh, um, I just switched my audio. Hopefully everything was recording. <laughs> it was playing off my computer. Okay, let's play this clip from Kyle and uh, listen to what he says because I think it's really important. Low carb diet, and they switch over and they start having a lot more carbs and they start getting fat, like really easily. You know what I'm saying? Or they're very <laughs> <Right>. sensitive. <laughs> How would you recommend they go about it? Like if somebody's you know 
gets on the carnivore diet when they're 22 and stays on it until they're 30 mm-hmm. and then goes back to a normal diet, they've aged, you know? So like they might just go, it's not like they can necessarily just eat what they ate before and have the exact same effects anyway. That's true. Uh, and they've probably aged their system a little bit more than it would have otherwise with all the, you know, cortisol and stuff from the, from the low carb diet. And, you know, mm. if they were doing a lot of fasting and stuff. So you have to think of it like they're specifically antagonizing the carbohydrate metabolism system. They're like attacking the insulin system with a low carb diet, you know, and with things like fasting, things that raise your cortisol and a bunch of other hormones that directly oppose the glucose metabolism system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in that context, it's kind of like, you know, if somebody goes off of testosterone, and then their testosterone drops. It's like, oh, it's not healthy to be on steroids all the time. <laughs> all okay, right. <laughs> and if you go off of steroids, though, you're going to feel like crap because your natural production is down. Right. And there will be a significantly long recovery time. There's drugs that can help that along. And, you know, you know what it's, yeah. you know what that's about. HCG. So, right, so it's, the, it's the same thing with carbs. Like, I mean, not the exact same thing, but you have altered your endocrinology is such that it's not able to handle this macronutrient the way it was before this alteration. Mm-hmm. So I think it's good to go back <laughs> before this alteration, right? But that's not something you can do overnight. And if you're older, you know, if you decide to do this in your like forties or something, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you'd be like super surprised, like, Oh, I gained 10 pounds over like, you know, a few months. Cause like now I'm, I'm eating a bunch of ice cream. Cause like Ray Pete says, ice. it's like, yeah. <laughs> okay. So that was from a podcast with uh, Kyle and Leo Wick. And you can find that. Uh, I think if you just type in Leo Wick on YouTube, but the reason why I think this is so important is Kyle is emphasizing uh, the idea that the weight gain, or again, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in Kyle's mouth, but the, the approaches and the life of most people is highly stressful. And so when they're starting to gain weight, um, there's lots of problems going on at that moment. And so just, again, I would say that just using nutrition is kind of, um, uh, underpowered at a certain point. And so again, a person might need to address a vitamin D deficiency or might need to address a thyroid deficiency. And I think using a, a diet only approach, especially in the persons in their thirties or forties or whatever is, is not really enough to, um, defend against the the bad environment or the history of stressful experiences and things like that. And so, in fact, I think Ray, Ray says something like that stressful, um, uh, Oh, here it is. Okay. Ray says, uh, despite the presence of all required nutrients that would be adequate for someone with a generally supportive environment, a good diet won't necessarily be adequate for someone with a problematic environment or a history of stressful experiences. And so again, you could apply this to uh, weight loss. And so again, uh, not to try to blackpill everybody or whatever, but again, the situation is very bad. (laughs) The Wi-Fi and EMF, those things aren't helping the toxic culture that we're all exposed to this year long psychological operation of, um, just insanity. I'm sure that's not going to help. Um, so again, just trying to use every tool in the toolbox to reverse the degenerative effects of aging and, uh, uh, weight gain and things like that. So let me just do one other paper. 
So this paper by Marguelis in 1979, they talk about the common obesity of middle age being a mild version of Cushing syndrome that may be part of the normal aging process. And so Cushing's is a a situation of hypercorticalism or high cortisol. And so again, that just being associated with aging. And again, if a person has a history of fasting or low carb or trauma in their life, which many people have, uh, again, the, the uh, stimuli to get out of the situation, out of the bad st- uh, stress situation or the stress metabolism uh, might be kind of involved. <laughs> okay, let's open this up. I appreciate that, uh, T. Brown. Uh, Elizabeth says, what do you think about eating other mushrooms like lion's mane and mataki mushrooms? Do you think they have antibacterial properties? I don't, I'm sure they do. I don't know about them. I think Ray said that white elm and oyster mushrooms were other types uh, in addition to white button mushrooms, but I haven't experimented with them. Uh, Christopher says, could you give us your thoughts on vitamin A toxicity theory? At least a dozen people have slashed their cholesterol to normal levels around 170 from high cholesterol of 276 without the use of thyroid healing eczema. Ray has talked about beta carotene toxicity a lot, but can you give us your view of vitamin A toxicity? So me just spitballing on this, I think the people that are incredibly sensitive to vitamin A or it causes harm, specifically in natural foods, I think, uh, I suspect they're, they're probably seriously hypothyroid. And so going back to that reference, this is like the star of this live stream. Uh, <laughs> reference. But again, excess vitamin A has been reported by several workers to reduce the metabolic rate. And then um, repeat steroids. So Ray said this a long time ago. So he said, uh, vitamin A is highly unsatur- uh, unsaturated in excess. It suppresses the thyroid. So it has to be balanced with thyroid. The combination is effective for increasing progesterone, decreasing estrogen, slowing the turnover of skin cells and making the skin cells function longer before flaking off. And so again, the very important part is the vitamin A is highly unsaturated in excess. It suppresses the thyroid. And so again, a lot of like kind of people with issues that are, they don't know, maybe they don't know they're hypothyroid. They haven't checked their pulse and temperature. Um, and they take vitamin A and they have a bad effects from it. I don't, I'm not doubting them. I'm just saying they should probably focus on getting the metabolic rate up rather than saying vitamin A is toxic. And then, um, I have one more paper about this. Uh, here it is. So this kind of confirms what Ray just said, <laughs> the degradation of vitamin A retinoids and vitamin A active retinoids generally parallel parallels the oxidation of degradation of unsaturated lipids factors that promote oxidation of unsaturated lipids enhance the degradation of vitamin A either by direct oxidation or by direct effects of free radicals. So, uh, thank you for that, Christopher. Appreciate it. Uh, Kennedy says, I'm just wondering what do you use for personal hygiene? I'm curious about the teeth in particularly, given that most toothpaste have questionable ingredients in them. Again, I just use baking soda, but I'm a bum. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I haven't experimented with any natural, uh, toothpaste or anything. Colin says, Hey Danny, for someone newer to raise work in bio bioenergetics, I'm trying to understand progesterone and why we, we don't hear about it more from other people in the health world. Uh, any thoughts to this? Also, what is progesterone and how does it help? So progesterone is a product from Kenogen. Ray has mentioned it a few times. That's the product I have the most experience with. And I mix it with a little bit of DHEA and put it on my legs because it upsets my stomach when I take it orally. It helps me sleep. It gives me good dreams. 
Ray's uh, emphasis on it has always been interesting, you know, and again, Ray's approach is always interesting because uh, he talks about a lot of things that other people do not talk about. And so I, I, I think I talked about this before, but uh, Paul Jaminy of the perfect health diet. One time somebody asked him about endocrinology and Paul was like, Oh, endocrinology is too confusing. Don't, so I don't talk about it. <laughs> and so that's true. It's very confusing, but Ray engages in it because he's trying to paint a big, beautiful picture. I think of physiology and life and stress and aging and things like that. And so, um, I don't know if I have a graph, but anyways, uh, LDL cholesterol, active thyroid hormone, I think vitamin A produce pregnenolone in, in the mitochondria of cells and the preg pregnenolone is further metabolized down into progesterone and dihydroepiandrosterone or DHEA. And so I think, uh, again, getting the thyroid function up helps a person turn over the cholesterol into pregnenolone and DHEA and high cholesterol is a like a cardinal symptom of lower thyroid function. I don't know if I would, uh, like I, it took me a really long time to experiment with pro uh, progesterone. I was kind of turned off from it for, for, for a while because I thought it might have harmful effects. <laughs> um, but in 2018, I kind of warmed up to it, especially when using it with DHEA and, uh, yeah, I've, I've noticed good things from it, but again, I, I do take thyroid, I do take vitamin D. And so I don't know how it would affect somebody just immediately, uh, taking progesterone. I'm sure it could help in certain situations, but um, I think for me, it has slightly different effects if my thyroid is low or my vitamin D is low. And so, so again, all it's taking like progesterone and DHEA can be extremely confusing. So I guess my recommendation would be getting the, the thyroid, uh, in order first, because I think again, that can take a long time and it's like the top of the steroid metabolism tree. And as uh, in regards to progesterone, what it does is I think it's like this grand protector from stress. And so Ray, I think I have it in my notes. I, I don't know if I could find it quickly, but, uh, rats, when they had their adrenals taken out, but if they were given enough progesterone, they could withstand stresses and live normally. But once the progesterone administration was ceased, they like instantaneously died. And so what that, what Ray's interpretation of that, um, study was that, uh, progesterone can basically like fill in for a lack of your adaptive adrenal glands. And so I, and Georgie and I have talked about this too, but you don't need to adapt with cortisol and adrenaline and aldosterone when you have enough progesterone from good thyroid function. But that doesn't mean supplementing it directly wouldn't have good effects as well. And I think Ray, in one of our episodes, he talked about like a basic cell stabilizer and cholesterol was even the more primitive ancient stabilizer, but progesterone is more specific. And so, yeah, we talked about this uh, quite a, quite a bit since from two months ago. <laughs> Okay. Heather Parker says, any remedies for the constipate crew? I uh, need to take cascara uh, daily and still passing marbles. Okay. So I think uh, from reading and my own experience that constipation is again, another cardinal symptom of lower thyroid function and Evernote is very slow. Okay. So uh, this paper from 2009, they say reduction of peristalsis and hypothyroidism is the main Pathophysiologic process and constipation remains the most cons uh, most frequent gastrointestinal complaint. Up to 15% of patients have fewer than three bowel movements weekly. And another one, they say symptoms due to slowing of gastrointestinal motility constitutes an important problem in most patients with primary hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism causes slowing of motor activity in all regions of the gastrointestinal tract, and consequently, constipation can be seen. And there's another Merck one uh, down here, we can see that 
uh, poor appetite and constipation, pulse slow, temperature subnormal, hypocholesterolemia. And so I would expect the constipation, it'd be, it's, I think it's almost impossible to be constipated when your thyroid is good. <laughs> In fact, taking too much thyroid, I think, can lead to diarrhea. And so uh, that would be my two cents. If a person was like, well, I don't, I don't want to take thyroid, I think getting the vitamin D up, getting more calcium, uh, and using the carrot salad and the well-cooked white button mushrooms might provide some relief. But again, if it's from lower thyroid function, it might be hard to untangle that web. Was there something else I wanted to say about this? Okay, I think that's all. Okay, Sean Tatenda says, Hey, Danny, we all love your work indeed. I'm curious to know your experiences after the carnivore diet. And when you start correcting hair loss in particular, how bad was your hair loss when you recovered? And did you know to do any blood work and found any indications that influenced your actions in combating your negative symptoms of hypothyroidism or hair loss? Yeah, so again, I, I was taking my labs way before I ever found out who Ray Pete was. So high cholesterol, high prolactin, uh, feeling cold all the time, having those classical uh, hypothyroid symptoms, those what are what led me to Ray. And also noticing that my hair loss was worse some days, good some other days, and, and things like that. Like those, uh, inherently, I thought something was up with my body. <laughs> like the good days were not only good hair days, but they were also like... Um, happy days. Like I was more optimistic. I had like a better attitude. I was less depressed or I'd, I'd sleep better. And so there was always like a constellation of problems in addition to hair loss. And so it was always hard for me to be like, well, everything's fine. And just my hair, I'm just losing my hair. That never seemed like a reasonable attitude to take because it was always connected with many other problems. And so again, trying veganism, trying carnivore, there were ups and downs, many, uh, many different times. It wasn't like, one day I was just like, oh, my hair isn't falling out anymore. It was just kind of this, I think, gradual progression to increasing the metabolic rate. And I, I think that increases the warmth of, of the brain, the scalp, uh, which is um, if hair is an insulation for the brain, I think temperature is this kind of variable that's not talked about in hair loss circles. That's probably very important. And, uh, and again, the thyroid being the regulator of the transfer of electrons through the cell and the production of heat by all the tissues in the body. Uh, okay. So did I answer this question? Experience after the carnivore diet, the first year was okay. And then it shit hit a fan the second year. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. And again, I think it was, I think some of the benefits of the carnivore diet, the high protein, avoiding intestinal allergens, uh, um, what else? Uh, saturated fat, not using unsaturated fats at all. Yeah. So I, I think there are some genuinely good parts about that. I think the problem is that it subscribes to this totally whack, uh, <laughs> what did our ancestors do type of idea. And even to that question, they answer it kind of, um, in a ridiculous way. And, and I think and so I think that's kind of the main problem. Pe people on the YouTube saying like, what did our ancestors need? I think it's almost, I think it's like the most absurd way to start uh, putting together some meaningful picture of the body. Like you could ignore that question, go get lab work. And if your parathyroid hormone was high or your prolactin was high, that would almost instantaneously um, suggest calcium. And again, that would be in, uh, uh, that would be in contradiction to what a lot of people are saying paleo man ate like, Oh, we didn't have a source of calcium or whatever. It like, so it just doesn't even, it's not even helpful. <laughs> it's more likely to mislead, a, mislead a person, I think. Okay. 
Okay, these next two questions are a little bit similar. They say, hi, Danny, do you have any new protocol to deal with men's hair loss? And then Adam says, do you have testimonials from clients of yours? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> Is it hard to know what's realistically achievable in terms of hair growth with Pete's method? And I feel uh, that it would offer a nice boost of credibility and confidence for anyone new to you guys slash Ray Pete. So my kind of approach of, uh, with this has changed over time. And so the first thing I would offer is that a person can do incredibly dangerous things to regrow hair and it will work. And so the thing I always equate it to is I have like an older friend who's in their seventies and he had pretty intense acne scars. And I was like, Hey, how, how did you get those scars on your face? And he was like, Oh yeah. When I was younger, I used to go to the doctor and they would irradiate my face to get rid of the acne. <laughs> and, uh, he had like cancer, uh, later on in his life. And so obviously that wasn't a very smart approach to like getting rid of his acne, but he kept doing it because it actually worked. And so again, I would equate finasteride and the likely increase in nitric oxide, like in the literature for finasteride, it says it increases estrogen, estrogen increases intracellular calcium, which turns on nitric oxide. And uh, so again, it's not out of this world. I don't think it's ever been investigated, but I think finasteride is likely increasing nitric oxide, stimulating the flow of blood, possibly renewing a tissue, uh, renew, renewing the hair follicle. But I think that's incredibly dangerous. And so I, the question kind of on this channel has always been about uh, promoting hair growth and health in a safe way. And so um, again, people send me things all the time. I, uh, I'm at like a different phase of my life where I'm not necessarily trying to convince people that, Oh, I'm, I'm right about this, you know? And the other thing is, uh, once you, I, like I talk to people all the time, you know, I'm not saying that's why you should trust me or anything, but I talk to like three or four people every day, <laughs> a lot about hair loss, about their lives, the symptoms they're experiencing. And the thing that sticks out to me the most is how complicated everybody is <laughs> and how intricate their lives are. Uh, what types of stress they've experienced. Like a lot of people have opened up and told me they had some terrible life trauma, you know, or like multiple life traumas. Um, and I'd have to be like a psycho to say, oh yeah, consult with me and I can like unravel your traumatic life and regrow your hair. You know, I think my approach these days is to like offer, uh, I think the best information available, which obviously I'm trying to do right now, you know, um, offer my experiences to improve a person's life, improve, improve their general health. And I think that coincides with stopping hair loss or stopping dandruff or, or lowering the inflammation that's associated with, uh, hair loss. So that's kind of my approach. Um, but again, I could, I could easily do something like, oh, you could try all these dietary things and then try minoxidil too, or try finasteride. And it would be totally disingenuous if like people were saying, oh yeah, I experienced regrowth using these, what I consider to be like extraordinarily dangerous interventions. And so that was a 45 minute answer to this question, but I, I do receive testimonials, photos, et cetera. I have for many years. Uh, I used to post them online and th things, but I just, I stopped doing that. Um, and I guess I would have nothing to offer if the person didn't think that the hair loss was associated with failing health. And a lot of people don't think that. And so that that's why they're not interested in what I have to say. Um, or they think it's a mixture of androgens and bad genes, which I think is just preposterous. But, um, so again, if you think that it is associated with stress or an accumulation of stress over a lifetime, then I think this work has something valuable to offer. If you think it's the result of DHT and genes, then there's probably really nothing here for the person. Um, and the last thing I'll say is sometimes you're talking to somebody that's still in a bad situation 
And so whether they hate their spouse or their boyfriend or girlfriend, or they work a job they hate. And so these are like chronic stress things that um, I don't tell people to quit their jobs or to tell people to break up with their loved ones or anything like that. And so Again, that's why I, I kind of have this arm's length approach to anybody I talk to because I think the ball's always in their court. I'm not directing their life. And so stress and how people interact with uh, stress and their relationship is very com- complicated. And uh, that's why I feel like the only thing I can really do is be a purveyor of information that I think is um, useful. Okay, what time? Okay, we're at an hour. Maybe I'll do well, one or two more questions. Okay, I don't know an answer to that one. Okay, this SM says, could you talk about thyroid supplementation in regards to whether heart rate and body temperature should rise together? What if body temperature is fine, but the heart rate is still pretty low, 50 to 60 BPM, assuming the person is not super fit? What would the low heart rate be an indicator of for the raise, the dose of thyroid supplementation, or is the body temperature more important? So I, so I think the complicated thing is if the body temperature can be maintained by cortisol. And so this is kind of easier said than done. But um, if the body temperature is high and there's kind of like a sense of tension or anxiety, Hans Sully called it feeling keyed up, that could mean the high temperature is not from thyroid. And I would almost take the 50 to 60 BPM pulse as a sign that that uh, high temperature is likely from cortisol. And so again, if, if interpreting the pulse and temperature was too confusing, you could get the total cholesterol check, the TSH, the vitamin D, the prolactin, the parathyroid hormone. Those would also paint a picture of the thyroid status. But um, 50 to 60 BPMs is, is very low, I think. And I don't think that has anything to do with fitness. I think that's a, adapt, an adaptation to endurance exercise or um, – whatever exercise the person is doing and, and it lowers, it gives them uh, a, it induces a hypo metabolism to reduce the oxygen need. So, uh, yeah, again, it would be interesting uh, SM if they had other, uh, kind of hypothyroid like symptoms, checking out that Merck manual that I had me- uh, mentioned. It's actually still up here. And so again, there's so many symptoms associated with hypothyroidism and, uh, temperature subnormal and pulse slow are just two of them. Uh, would the low heart rate be an indicator for the need to raise the dose of thyroid supplementation? Uh, oh, if you're already taking thyroid, uh, yeah, I think it would be. But again, checking those other things would be important to make sure you're on the right track. Okay, let me see. Just scanning through here. <laughs> Okay, I think I'll call it there because I do need to go in approximately eight minutes. Um, okay, we'll we'll go with that. Okay, guys, <laughs> guys, thank you so much. Let me uh, go scroll back here. Uh, thank you so much again. Not this week. The next week will be Georgie, then Georgie again, then repeat again. Thank you so much uh, for the, the, the audience, the participation, the commenting, the liking. Uh, the, the audience has grown despite the roadblocks by YouTube and things like that. And so again, I feel very fortunate to, um, again, for anybody to watch anything I do, and it's even better to have Georgie and Ray on the show continually. And I'm going to try to bring on new guests as well this uh, next year. Um, but again, I have an amazing listenership. Thank you guys so much. Uh, have a safe new year. Uh, and I appreciate it. I'll talk to you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Bye.